Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Biz News Radio with me, Felicity Duncan, and of course, our Editor-in-Chief here at Biz News, Alec Hug. Now, Alec, last week we talked a little bit about what was then the impending announcement of Cyril Ramaphosa's cabinet. We talked a little bit about what we wanted to, what we wanted to see, what would be an encouraging sign and some of the important portfolios, uh, continuity with, uh, Pravind Gordon and with Tito and Bawani and those kinds of things. We now know what the cabinet looks like. We know uh, how much it's shrunk. Um, as as promised, and um, there were a couple of interesting appointments. The uh, appointment of uh, Patricia DeLille, in particular, I thought was quite interesting, um, and of course uh, Toko Dudiza uh, in the land uh, portfolio. So there's a lot to chew on, and I wanted to get your take. Looking at the announcement, what do you think? What is what is encouraging? What is concerning? What should people be thinking about? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. In fact, it was one of our, it was our very first, uh, going live to a major event, uh, for our business, business radio. So that was also a little landmark for us. And we got the tech right and it all worked and we got quite a few people tuning in. So that was, that was great. Um, looking at the, uh, at the individuals and that's always what you do in a cabinet. What are your options? Uh, Ramaposa, remember, can only bring in two people from outside kind of the top 30. So you're going to have to get, for a cabinet ministry, you're going to have to get very well uh, uh, voted in on the National Executive Committee. The ANC has got all these rules and and traditions that just can't be uh, avoided. So what he did was interesting, as you mentioned, with Patricia DeLille, but that's a little bit of a long play. Doubtless, they are still smarting at the fact that the DA is running the Western Cape. And I think from a strategic point of view, the ANC doesn't want to allow the DA to continue to build this. Uh, it's almost like a prospectus that they have uh, showing the Western Cape is the most efficiently run province uh, and give us a chance elsewhere. And they, they came fairly close in a couple of the provinces in this uh, last election. And there's no doubt <clears throat> excuse me, that Ramaphosa and the Brains Trust thought about this carefully and are now going to find some way of uh, at least attacking the official opposition in the in their heartland. So bringing Patricia DeLille into the fray means that they'll be bringing a, a chunk of voters from that part of the of the country. So a very shrewd long-term new, uh, move. The other big moves that on reflection were, were interesting, you mentioned Toko Didiza. Uh, she's highly respected within the ANC. She was the um, uh, candidate premier for... Uh, Chwani, um, for the ANC, and she didn't quite swing it uh, in the last election, but that's how she was almost parachuted in there to, to try and win uh, the, the city, which they eventually lost to the coalition parties. But it, it's likely that this is, a, this is a very, very difficult portfolio, and it's likely that somebody with her um, humanity and, and feel uh, will be best placed for doing it. So th- that was an interesting appointment. The other appointments that are of relevance to the business community were Gwedi Mantash now getting not only trade and industry, uh, sorry, uh, not only mining, which he's been running, but also energy. And that's going to be a big story in the future. I, I know we've spoken about a lot. Uh, the, a big move this week was when Shell joined Total in exploring for oil uh, just off the southern uh, well, gas, which becomes oil, gas to liquid anyway, um, after that big total strike that they found. So 
shallow going next door in the block and they'll be looking uh, for gas there as well. Uh, energy is going to be a big story in South Africa in the years ahead, very big. So putting that one together with mining under Gwedi Mantash's is, uh, steady hand is is a, a, a good development. There are a lot of people outside of the ANC and perhaps observers with superficial knowledge are, un, are unhappy about Mantash, given that he's, he has uh, deep links with the South African Communist Party. But in many ways, it's more uh, organizational than ideological nowadays. The, the, the communists are not the old Soviets that they used to be. And the one thing about Mantash is that he is a straight shooter and the mining uh, guys like him a lot. So they were very happy, the mining sector, after a difficult periods uh, in the Zuma administration to have him uh, as their minister. And they were very happy that he came back again. So that's a good point. Ibrahim Patel is a very efficient and uh, an, an incorruptible uh, uh, minister. I know him very well. I've known him for, for nearly 30 years now. And it was good to see his portfolio being expanded, despite the fact that he did run economic affairs in the Zuma cabinet. He wasn't part of the inner grouping, uh, in Zuma's inner grouping by any means. So it's good to see him getting the trade and industry portfolio as well. That, I think you can imagine, is is going to uh, give a quite a bit of life there. And then the other two major portfolios that you mentioned earlier, Tito Mboweni on finance, there was question marks over it because of his independence. And Pravin Gordon, uh, continuing with state enterprises, there were question marks there internally because of his, his, uh, his health hasn't been great, uh, and he is getting on a bit. Um, on the other hand, you had the EFF who were threatening uh, Zuma, uh, Ramaphosa, that uh, they should, he, he should not put Gordon back into the cabinet, and thankfully uh, Ramaphosa ignored that. So cabinet-wise, I think it's about as good as we could have hoped for. Um, I was hoping that, that Cyril would bring in uh, of his two outsiders, as it were, he would bring in um, uh, Maria Ramos, um, who I really tipped quite strongly to get a cabinet post, but who knows what happens behind the scenes in these things, and, and she didn't make it. And he instead uh, brought in Patricia DeLille and, of course, elevated Emran Patel, who was quite a long way down in the lists and, as a result, wouldn't have really um, been uh, in line for such a huge portfolio. So interesting interesting times, and uh, you've got to say, well done. There's Some of the Zuptoids are to be found. I didn't see them initially, but to be found among the deputy ministers, but in relatively junior portfolios, and it's almost like a phasing out approach. Uh, the, the the big story, of course, for lots of people is the deputy president, David Mapusa, um, being reappointed as deputy president. He's going to have a, a quite, as we published this week with yet another letter of accusations. He's got a tough time ahead of him, and deputy presidents are not really that powerful. Uh, of course, they're are a heartbeat away from the presidency, but in the in the operational affairs of a country, not that powerful. So it'll be interesting to see how that whole thing develops. But I guess Ramaphosa, uh, he, he picks his battles, and uh, he, he probably felt it wasn't the right time to pick that one just yet. Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting. And I think you're right that there's a lot to be happy about, a lot of positive stuff that came out of the cabinet announcements. Now, you mentioned a little bit there about the, the DA and their, their progress in the Western Cape. And I wanted to pick up a little on that because I've had some interesting conversations over the last few weeks with a few of our members, um, our premium members about just where the DA is headed. Now, um, this year, 2019, it's its 60th anniversary, uh, founded in 1959. Uh, that was at the time it was the United Party back in the day. Now, 
consistently since then, through many name changes, the DA has stood for classical liberal values. And it's one of the oldest, at this point, one of the oldest uh, long-running, continuous political parties in Africa. So there's a real history there, and there's a lot of um, achievements that they can list looking back over those 60 years. But this election, I think, was a difficult one for them. They actually lost at the national level a little market share, call it, vote share. Um, although, as you rightly point out, they did pretty well at the provincial level. Uh, but where is the DA headed? You know, during the campaign, you mentioned that you found a lot of their sloganeering and a lot of their approach to be very negative. Uh, they were campaigning a lot on not being the ANC instead of being a positive alternative, instead of providing a vision. They were really uh, negative campaigning. And looking ahead, you know, where is the DA going to head? How are they going to build up to a party that can really compete at the national level, that can achieve that 50-plus percent of the vote and form a government? I've been reflecting a lot on that, and I think the business community has as well. But you often got to draw on your personal experience. And I remember, Felicity, it must be 20 years ago, going to an event that Helen Ziller was uh, hosting at the Carlton Centre, in fact, I think it was the old Carlton Hotel. It's that long ago. Um, that's long since uh, gone into disrepair. And I remember her – I chatted with her afterwards. We, uh, oh, it wouldn't have been quite 20 years ago, but uh, I was at MoneyWeb, and it was in the fairly early days of MoneyWeb. And we had uh, known each other from many – some time before. In, in, as a very, very young journalist, I was at the Rand Daily Mail, where she was the political correspondent and a, a, a real firebrand and extremely courageous uh, one of those those icons that the rest of us looked up to. And we had a conversation afterwards, a, a private off-the-record conversation, and she said to me that you look around you, and there were a lot of white faces there, she said in, in the, our future is, it, is the day where you're not going to see white faces in the DA's uh, front line. We're going to be bringing in people who represent better represent the population of the country. And that was her strategy, and she achieved it brilliantly. If you if you look back on it now, um, with the fact that you do have a a, a very strong group of uh, black, particularly black African um, politicians, young politicians who've come in there, but along the way, it's almost like sometimes the the values of the party, the values that she really ascribes to, uh, got a bit lost. When I heard Musi Maimani for the first time in a, an open presentation. I was so impressed with this man because he gave a vision of hope. He was not, this was before Zuma had got into uh, his, his rapacious, uh, corrupt mode um, to the degree that we all knew about it. And Muzi was not fighting. They weren't fighting Zuma. They were fighting for greater hope in South Africa, how to get the economy going, do the right things. And you know, the funny thing is voters are not stupid. I know Malema and co. call the ANC voters voting cattle. That's just not true. Voters do think carefully and they do vote for what is right for them. And in this case, it, you just got the feeling that here was a guy in a political party, that uh, the official opposition, who was, who was presenting the right kind of story, a story of hope. And then in this election, it was almost like they ran out of ideas. They've been fighting the Zuma, the uh, anti-Zuma campaign for so long that the DA didn't seem to know or 
or had forgotten about its real uh, purpose, which was to offer an alternative to the socialist-influenced uh, um, economic policies that the ANC has got, the developmental state, for instance. The, the DA has got a different approach, should have a different approach. And they lost their way. They, they went back to a campaign that the party had many, many years ago when Tony Leon was still around, I think, in the, 90, in the 94 campaign, where it was all about fear-driven. And uh, perhaps they felt that that, that had succeeded to a, to a degree, that it was worth trying again. Um, they've learned, though, uh, certainly from what we've we've read of what Helen Ziller has had to say recently, that they did lose their way. They were drawn into race baiting and 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 racially driven campaigning, and they are going to go back to a more broader uh, approach. And I think that's going to be good for the DA. And it's also very good to reflect and to reboot um, because they've got a, a far different kettle of fish now. Uh, in the uh, in the ruling party with uh, Ramaphosa running it, uh, putting highly uh, competent people into very important posts in government. You're going to see the impact of that. You have to see the impact of that. When you take the village idiot away and you put a, a person who is a, a servant leader, as Ramaphosa has made as number one priority, then you do find that the, the whole system does does improve. So the DA has to find a new a new way, an alternative. And from what we read of what Helen Zinner was saying, they are reflecting and, and they're probably going to go back to the stuff that made them so impressive and gave them all those gains uh, some time back. And that's where Musi, my mind, is happiest. That's where he's most comfortable he, when he talks about hope, when he talks about the future, when he, when he uplifts people. He's a very uplifting uh, a speaker, almost Obama-esque in certain instances. That's, where, that's his natural strong suit. Somebody misadvised him quite badly in this last campaign. Yeah, very sad to see. And I think you're right that they, they lost their way and hopefully they can find it again uh, over the next five years ahead of our, our next election. Now, another company, or rather a company that seems to have lost its way is Tesla. And we haven't spoken about it for a while and there's been a lot going on there. But I think really you can sum up the problems Quite nicely by, by noting the fact that Tesla's share price is now down to 185. Um, and it was, it was well above the 300 last year. Uh, massive decrease in the share price. Um, it's down about 50% actually, uh, depending on, you know, where you, where you take it from. Um, just a real loss of faith in the company by investors who have stood by it for a long time. And the reason for that is pretty clear. We've just seen, uh, frozen or slumping demand across all of its product lines and ongoing struggles with production to uh, meet even the demand that's there. Um, and it's just, it's very sad to see, you know, Tesla was always a bit of a gamble. You were, you were gambling on the fact that it would become a successful car company quickly enough to beat its cash burn. Right. It was a high growth company. It was burning a lot of cash and you just had to hope that they would hit profitability before they ran out of, uh, ran out of cash or ran out of the ability to raise more cash in capital markets. And at this point, I think that's starting to look like even more of a tough gamble than it has historically. Um, you know, it's, it's sad to see because I think it's an exciting company. Uh, but there it is, uh, just a real collapse over the last six months. Well, it is indeed, and it's one of those that we were quite fortunate on in our global portfolio because we uh, we owned it. We did very well out of Tesla. 
um, Elon Musk was seemingly doing all the right things. They had the world at their feet. And then he started going wacky. And when he went wacky, and we spoke about it, you and I, a, a number of times, eventually, and I, you were the first one to point this out and say, hang on, something funny is going on with Tesla. And I didn't, I didn't quite buy it uh, until eventually he, he really he had that infamous uh, conference call with investors where he cut off Wall Street, or the, the guys who were asking the sensible questions, and then gave 20 minutes to a, a, a very flaky uh, YouTube um, uh, blogger or vlogger, as they call it, who then dominated the conversation through his uh, praising Elon Musk. It, it was quite, it was quite bizarre. And at that point, uh, we took the view that, hang on, something really strange is going on with this company. We sold the shares around about three, well, it was about three twenty-three thirty dollars, which today, of course, looks like genius. Um, it wasn't really. It was just taking taking note of what was happening at the time. That was prior to that crazy tweet about uh, he was selling the company to the Saudis and at 420 and all of that stuff. But he he really has he's a he's a genius. There's no question that Elon Musk has been blessed with uh, a fine brain, probably uh, grown in Pretoria, as we well know by spending time in the library as a kid. But on the other hand. He has also been uh, cursed with an, a, a massive ego, which tends to say only he can get it right. And there have been many instances of this when you read through what happened with General Motors in the early days. The man who founded General Motors and created it and, and, uh, and built it in the early port had to leave because the company was almost bankrupt. It was only when Sloan came in and, and sorted it out that General Motors became the, the, the mega business that it is today so what it what it, the, the qualities that it takes to create a business an innovative business like tesla or a disruptive business are not necessarily the same qualities for the chief executive to run that business into the future you need to to get your feet on the ground you need a um, jim collins good to great type of chief executive low profile low ego um, understanding the, the the nuts and bolts and the and the detail and not an understanding as well that God didn't bless one person with the monopoly on, uh, on, on what is right. In fact, the best way to find that out is by having a collaborative approach towards the problems that, that come up in particularly in a young company that's, that's evolving. So, um, who knows where Tesla is going to end up? There's a lot of rumors going around again, the perennial rumor that Apple is going to be buying them. Uh, there was uh, a report I saw from one of the analysts on Wall Street to say that they see the stock at below $10. So if there is a, a belief, a perception that, Apple, that Tesla could get to as low as that, then you can be pretty sure that the Apple Brains Trust are not going to go in and buy it at $185 a share. Um, the, the, the true value, excluding Elon Musk in that business, is probably closer to $10 than $185 where it is at the moment. I guess unless you uh, you believe that Musk is going to pull off a miracle and he now seems to be a lot more interested in, in SpaceX anyway, um, then you, you can't really be buying Tesla shares even at this level.
Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one's up on business.com in the premium section. Don't forget that you can sign up to premium. It's just £5 a month, and that gives you not only our great content, but also full digital access to the Wall Street Journal. 